out of their minds. In fact, it might be a reason that people even reject the idea of God. <clears throat> you know, if you have a parent who, let's say, everybody thinks is really nice, but you know that in the home they hold the line and they might discipline you, um, does that make them less loving? Of course not, as long as it's not abusive. Um, my father was that way. My father was always nice, but boy, you knew where the line was, and if you crossed it, you know, uh, you would have discipline upon a part of your body. Um, <clears throat> but the idea that the judgment of God, that he will hold Christians accountable for their actions and that he will judge those who have rejected him is an unsavory idea to the modern mind. And Peter says it's because we don't want any limitation to how we act. We don't want any limitation because I want to do what I want to do without any bump in the road. And then you have the judgment of God. It's a very difficult concept. I accept it because, one, Jesus talked about it, and I believe Jesus. Two, um, the apostles talked about it. The Bible does. And I believe that it is something that helps me as an individual to understand, that it's beneficial for the community I'm a part of, and it's beneficial for human flourishing. Um, there are people through the ages that have believed in the judgment of God. For instance, Martin Luther King believed in God's judgment and that justice would prevail in the end. And he drew upon his faith to advocate for social justice and equality. And a piece of that was the judgment of God. Harriet Tubman, the famous abolitionist who freed numerous slaves through the Underground Railroad, was a devout Christian. And she often referred to God's divine judgment against those who perpetrated slavery and injustice. Especially helpful if you maybe here in this life, don't see the justice that you think needs to be handed out. Corrie Ten Boom helped hide Jews during the Holocaust, and she had deep convictions regarding God's judgment. God's judgment helped her face immense danger as she had confidence that God would ultimately be the final judge in human actions. And she saw humans being horrific to other human beings. And so Peter speaks of the judgment of God being a motivator for us. And he says in verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Well, what are all these things. What does he mean by that? All these things. And it's that the heavens and the earth will be destroyed with fire. And God will make a new heaven and new earth. 
Peter has referred to this as the day of the Lord. And it includes men coming before God and answering for their life. Those who've rejected Christ will face eternal judgment. And those who are believers will be rewarded according to the faithfulness of Christ. Because all this is happening, Peter asked the question, what difference does it make? Now remember in the bullseye of Peter's concern are the false teachers who denied the second coming of Christ. Peter was trying to encourage the church to stand fast on the notion that Christ will indeed return. And Peter likely has the false teachers in mind when he speaks of judgment and destruction of the ungodly in verse 7, repentance in verse 9, and works being exposed in verse 10. So while the false teachers were espousing this erroneous doctrine um, and practicing sexual immorality and denying Christ's return, Peter is saying, oh, don't you forget, there will be a day of recompense. As I've said, false teachers are not the only ones impacted by the day of the Lord. Christians ought to live lives, it says, of holiness and godliness. Those are words we don't use too often anymore. Now, God's judgment was not given just to satisfy the curiosity of some people, but rather knowing that history culminates like the way we see written here, it's to be a motivation for believers to live a life befitting of their position in Christ. What kind of hope do people have without God's intervention in our world? Even without God's judgment? What hope would we have without the second coming? Why be faithful? If morality has no more value than just, you know, an immediate consequence, why bother? Why bother? I think Peter answers this question. Many people seem to have no regard for God's laws for morality. In fact, we could say this, that evil is at home with them. Whether it's headlong into immorality or acting out this kind of survival of the fittest mentality. Our staff and elders met this past week with LaDawn Emery from our congregation. She ministers in the area of human trafficking. And afterwards, I was thinking about the epitome of evil in our world that has been foisted upon the most vulnerable, which is children. We exploit children for financial gain in trafficking. We mutilate children as a sacrifice to the idol of transgender ideology. And we kill children in abortion. 
And the worst of it is that many call this evil good. People call it being woke. It's actually being dead, spiritually. And did you know it's the religion of demons? Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of, about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. That was the Apostle Paul. And then the psalmist describes the situation millennia ago that kind of mirrors our present culture. Listen to what it says. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. In the face of such evil, many believers might be tempted with just throwing up their hands and saying, what's the use? Kind of having a defeatist attitude. But Peter takes a much different approach. I think, number one, we can do justice now. Those people I mentioned, when I think of Martin Luther King, Harriet Tubman, Corey Ten Boom, you can seek justice now for the sake of human flourishing, but we can also keep our eyes on the future, knowing that God has not left us. We'll execute justice and we'll hold all accountable. I saw a movie this week about a, a young girl who had a, um, a sickness that not many people get. The mother was a nurse and was an advocate for her, and the mother was a very strong personality. And she went to the hospital and um, knew what the malady was and advocated certain medicine, which they refused to do. And the girl got sicker and sicker. And it got to the point to where they accused the mother of lying about the sickness, and that the girl didn't have that sickness, and they turned her over to social services, and the parents, this is in the U.S., by the way, could not visit the girl. The mother ended up committing suicide. She was so bothered by it. For three months, she couldn't see her daughter. Um, and it's still in litigation, uh, the, the whole situation. The daughter survived, is doing okay. But I, I, I listen to something like that, and I'm just like, I mean, you want to you wanna raid the hospital. You just can't believe the injustice. We, we see situations like this, and it's like, what do we do? What kind of hope is there? And then I think of this, there will come a day in which God will execute his justice. James wrote of this, to the, which is the, the very first book written in the New Testament chronologically, and Christians were being persecuted, and Christians were being, um, uh, they were being basically dismissed especially the poorer Christians within church, didn't get the good seats. And James at the end of the book says, don't worry, justice is coming. So be patient, he tells them. Hmm. So we can keep our eyes upon the future.
knowing that God has not left us. Peter says what ought to typify our lives is holiness and godliness. Some have translated this holy acts and godly attitudes, meaning holiness has to do with behaviors and godliness has to do with perspective or mindset. In a more general term, holiness refers to a life separated from the world unto God, and godliness is a life that is reverential and devout, dedicated to God. However you want to slice these two words, the more important takeaway is that there is a moral imperative that follows the act of what our future hope is, this promise of future hope. Because that is true, we need to do this. In other words, if you truly believe in the second coming, it will impact your life. Now, this is not an uncommon theme. We read Paul's words to Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice, anticipation of our blessed hope. That is a motivating factor for living godly lives. Think of it this way. Think of it in personal terms, that, that, that Jesus is coming and you are a part of his plan. That's an amazing concept. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. So every one of us will have a praise from God and will enjoy our eternal reward. And others may not have as much. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Now waiting is easy enough to translate, but what does hastening mean? Does it imply that by our actions, God can adjust the timetable of Christ's return. Some think so, actually. Some think that our praying and evangelism and earnestness, that in doing that, we become active agents in quickening the return. Now, I'm not prone to take that view because the preponderance of scriptural injunctions regarding the second coming don't seem to confirm that we have that kind of impact. But let's take a look. Waiting means to expect. And it's actually, the word is sometimes accompanied by anxiety. That's interesting. And I think the idea is that, the, that we're not to have this passive waiting on Christ, kind of like just waiting for the arrival of a bus. Rather, in the second coming, these are going to be world-shattering events in his return. And so this anticipation is partnered by deep emotion. I think that's the idea. 
Jesus told his disciples to pray what? Your kingdom come. It has the idea of welcoming the kingdom. It's the idea of expectancy, watchfulness, being alert to the rival. I think that had a, a present tense and future tense, that I want the kingdom rule to take place now. And I can start with my own life, but in the future, there is a kingdom as well. We're to be alert to the Lord's revival. And then hastening, I think it adds some vitality to this expectancy. The Greek word can actually be translated eagerly awaiting. Now, I think maybe some of us, all of us have probably had things where we've said, you know, I can't wait for, and it might be a wedding, you know, a graduation, a party. Delighted anticipation is the idea. You're not just waiting for it. You are yearning for it. You want it to happen soon. So instead of living in fear for the future, you live in holy eagerness. Does that typify your view of the future? You might have events going on at school. You might be nervous about how a certain group of people think about you. You might be worried about a job. You might have an issue in your marriage. Does that mean we don't have to be the, have this holy eagerness in the midst of those things? It's okay to be worried and fearful and that? I don't think so. What difference does Christ make? I often ask this of couples. When they're in the middle of a, a, a marital issue, go, okay, now you you're both Christians. Tell me what difference does that make right now? What difference does Christ make in your insecurity? What difference does Christ make in that you feel disrespected? If Christ says I'm secure and significant in him, what difference then does that make in this? And what difference does it make that my future is secure? In Christ. Hmm. Delighted anticipation. You're not just waiting for it, you earn for, yearn for it. You want it to happen soon. Paul ends 1 Corinthians with the simple word, Maranatha, translated, our Lord comes. This is an urgent and eager anticipation. You know, when I think of the evil in the world, kind of like I've already mentioned, I welcome the Lord coming back. When I think of the rewards of seeing him, I welcome it. When I think of, of seeing him face to face and living in sight of his glory, I eagerly anticipate him. Now, don't get me wrong, I love living now and serving him, but I also anticipate eagerly eternity with him. In the very last book of the New Testament, Paul gives a glimpse of this perspective. He said, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, 
which the Lord, as righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It's almost as if, by the way, Paul wrote this while in prison. He's in the Mamertine prison, chained, and he's saying, man, I'm looking forward to this. I've got a bright future. John implores the believers in 1 John, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in the shame of his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Listen, this is not a passage about salvation, but confidence at his coming. And John calls us to abide. Not all Christians abide. Not all Christians are in active fellowship with him, but that's what John is calling us to. So that when he comes, we're not in shock. But it's a welcome coming. The business I used to work for when I moved here to Springfield, the owner of the company would fly in on a jet. He rented John Denver's private jet. And he would come in to different stores around the country unannounced. And when he came, you better have the store looking great. Because if you didn't, heads would roll. (laughs) Right? You had to be ready. You had to anticipate that this may happen. And sure enough, it did. And I think John is saying, be ready. Be in active fellowship with Christ. Welcome him. Don't let it be a shock. Now, for some of you that are older and you go to your high school reunion, I'm guessing that many people might want to lose a few pounds, whiten their teeth, get a new set of clothes. How much more are we to anticipate the union with Christ with clothes of righteousness? After using the phrase, the day of the Lord, Peter now uses the day of God here in verse 12. Now, are those two phrases synonymous? Or is there a reason that Peter says day of God? Well, Most see it as synonymous phrases. Uh, There's a couple that actually, a couple commentators who saw it as a a distinct saying that the day of Lord uh, was a term for judgment and destruction. The day of God is what comes afterwards in the eternal state when everything is submitted to God's rule. I'm not convinced that one can draw such a distinction given that the day of God, the only other use is in Revelation 16, 14, in the midst of the seven bowls of God's wrath. So I don't think the word has a clear distinction between the two. So I think it's best that we not do it as well. But we can't miss the point that Peter's making here. Christians can find hope that God judges the world and restores righteousness. All that is contrary to God will be banished from creation with fire. Fire's been mentioned before. 
but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That was in verse 7 of our same chapter. And then we've got in verse 10 here, uh, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. And then Paul adds, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, kind of giving us the, the motivation for the fire. Jesus himself refers to judgment multiple times and implores his followers to be ready. He said in Matthew, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll sit in his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And later in verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, if we can trust the words of Jesus when he talks about judgment, then I'm prone to think we can trust Peter, the follower of Christ, when he talks about the same. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter makes reference to the new world being promised before. And I've already talked about Jesus giving such a promise, but it's also in the Old Testament. We read in Isaiah, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall be remembered or uh, shall not be remembered or come into mind. One of the great realities of eternity is we will have no memory of time. We'll be consumed with the new heaven and the new earth so that former things will not be remembered or come to mind. In verse 22 of Isaiah 66, it says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. That promise was given to Jews who were in exile, Babylon, and some were, were coming in to Jerusalem, finally. And God was letting them know that his plan was still in place. He was still at work. And we all need to be reminded of that, right? <laughs> the scope of his work was far beyond 700 B.C. Peter uses it in the first century. That God's promise is to encourage saints in the midst of their troubles. And he gives it to us as well. It's to encourage us. But God is patient, wanting people to repent. And so he waits to fulfill his promise. These promises are to encourage us today. Now, did Peter teach that the old heavens 
and earth will be annihilated completely and something completely redone? Or will God purify the existing world and in a sense renovate it? The answer is, we don't know. <laughs> All right? It's an old debate. Justin Martyr and Minucius Felix endorsed annihilation. Irenaeus and Origen argued for purification and renovation. In either case, the future world is physical, and the new one will be made. So we can look forward to the fulfillment of God's promise. The new world will be a place where righteousness dwells, as our passage says. In other words, righteousness will be permanently in home. You're not going to see evil parading through your streets, advertised on TV. Righteousness will be permanently in home. By implication, then, the false teachers will be excluded. And only those who have heeded the gospel will be included. If the future were only destruction, then that would be miserable. But there's not only judgment, but there's blessing, salvation. God promises a new world for believers, a transformed world, a new heaven, a new earth. Sin, which has scarred God's world, it's not going to have the final word. In a renewed universe, the ravages of the fall will be repaired by the glory of this new heaven and new earth. Paradise lost will be paradise regained. God's will can now finally be done in earth and heaven. And why will all this come to fruition? Revelation says, no longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. My dear friends, that is our future. The certainty of judgment, the inevitability of a day of reckoning, prompts believers to holy living. What Peter has done, he has unmasked the false teachers, and he has equipped believers to know that they are protected. And with the knowledge of God's judgment and our future hope, all of us are given ample motivation to continue living with great expectation. A tourist was once traveling through the area where the famed rabbi Hoffetz Heim was living. And being a great admirer of the rabbi, he made inquiries whether he could visit the rabbi at his home 
He soon got a reply that he was welcome to visit any time. So the young tourist arrived at the rabbi's home with much excitement. And upon reaching this simple one-roomed house, he was asked to enter. And upon entering, to his amazement, he saw only a table, a lamp, and a cot, besides many books, inside the house. And surprised by what he saw, the tourist inquired, Rabbi, where's the rest of your furniture? Rabbi Haim calmly replied, where is yours? <laughs> Puzzled by the rabbi's response, the tourist replied, my furniture, but I'm only a visitor here. And the rabbi replied, so am I. This is not my home. Rabbi understood that if the future promise is true, it ought to make a difference in how I live now. What difference does it make in your life? I would suggest it's more than having less furniture. Godly life, holy life, Let's go before the Lord.